0: there's nothing more universally healing than to not feel alone in our pain.
1: So many of us go through life feeling out of touch with ourselves, others, and the world around us. We feel disconnected, overwhelmed, distracted, and uncertain of how to find the clarity, purpose, and direction we so deeply, so authentically desire. The Living Centered Podcast is an invitation to another way of living.
2: Every episode, we sit down with mental health experts, artists, and friends for a practical and honest conversation about how to pursue a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting into who we truly are.
1: Hey, I'm Miles Edcox.
2: And I'm Lindsay Nobles.
1: And welcome to another episode of the Living Centered Podcast. This week, our guest is our own Cindy Westcott. She has too long of a CV and bio to even begin to cover, but here's just a little bit about her work. She serves as a senior clinical advisor of Milestones and has over 30 years experience as a licensed clinical social worker and trauma expert. Her experience includes over two decades in private practice as the founder of the Psychological Trauma and Wellness Center. She also has developed and facilitated inpatient specialty programs for suicide prevention and for the treatment of complicated grief and PTSD for hospitals. In addition, Cindy has developed and facilitated IOP treatment programs for adults, partial hospitalizations programs across the country for treatment, of traumatic grief and traumatic stress. She is level 2 EMDR. She utilizes a lot of other innovative therapies. She trains and speaks across the country on topics including trauma, culture, diversity, women and empowerment, adult children of alcoholics, eating disorders, in addition to other topics related to grief and trauma recovery. Cindy is one of the most amazing people that I've had the opportunity to work with in my Years in this field. And when we started our long term program here at Milestones, she was the person I immediately had in mind. I was like, if we could just have Cindy's mind and her brain and her heart imprint this program, then I just know it's going to change so many lives. And it took me a few years to convince her to move to on site full time and, and take the reins at that program. But boy, has she done just that. And more. She's just a friend, an incredible colleague, and her brain is sharp as it relates to some of the things that are so relevant. And I'm excited for you to hear this conversation.
2: Yeah, anyone that's around Cindy for more than a few minutes realizes that she is brilliant. I mean, she has just got so much knowledge packed in her head. And so it's so fun to get to learn from her. But what I love the most about Cindy is how she approaches her work with such empathy and understanding and helps us all start to see trauma and our own personal life experiences differently. She really helps connect the dots between our own personal experience and what is happening to us biologically, the science of it all. And it's so fun because it helps us feel more connected and less alone in our grief and our trauma.
1: Hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Cindy. Here we are, Living Center Podcast, one of my favorite people on the planet. Cindy Westcott is with us today. Welcome, Cindy.
0: Thank you. Really glad to be here. I'm excited to learn today. Glad to hear that. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So uh, we'll just jump right in, uh, Cindy. You know, we're, I'm excited because there's a variety of topics that I want to uh, spend time with you around uh, on our podcast here. And, you know, you're going to be a reoccurring guest. So those of you who know Cindy, who've experienced her here at Onsite or on some of our webinars, You may be itching to hear her talk about some of her other topics of expertise. Um, Just recently did a webinar on narcissism, which was so helpful for so many people, thousands of people tuned into that. Uh, And I'm sure, and there's some other things too that I know you've heard her talk about, but just be patient because we're going to roll those out kind of one at a time to where we'll be talking about different topics. But one one of the things that we thought would be really important to talk about, honestly, in general, just in any season, because our... I think our understanding around this topic has just expanded uh, substantially. And I still think we have a long way to go in terms of mm-hmm. our collective understanding of uh, trauma, uh, psychological Absolutely. trauma. And you know, you've spent your whole career uh, working in and around trauma. You've been in a lot of different settings. And of course, you've curated our uh, longer term residential program specializing in trauma down at Milestones. And in this season, uh, we're excited you're going to be Uh, speaking more, doing some writing, uh, continuing to curate programming down there and across all of our forums. But for this this group, uh, we want to just help unpack and understand a little bit more about trauma, how it might be impacting us individually, I think us collectively, the people around us, and maybe some things that can be supportive of all of Mm -hmm. us as we navigate uh, this season. So, it's just start there, like your your understanding of trauma and how you've seen it evolve over the years. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and in 33 years, I have seen lots of changes, and I'm happy to say most of them are, are very positive. It's very exciting, actually, to see the growth uh, that's occurring in this field, and mainly that's because it's provided us with the opportunity to develop tools and modalities that you can see right in front of you are actually creating a physiological, mental and emotional and sometimes spiritual healing for the person that you're working with. And it's not so much the modality as it is what we've learned about the body and the mind and the brain and how the mind and body hold trauma in a certain part of the brain and why it continues to create symptoms sometimes throughout our lives. You know, there's still a lot. There's still a lot of us that believe we should be able to put the past in the past. We should rise above our pain. We should somehow stop dwelling on it. That's a favorite that people say. I need to stop dwelling on this. And so much of the research is now showing us all the answers as to why people can't stop dwelling on it, um, why it continues to affect us the way it does, and. In the many years that I've been in this business, I've seen more and more and more that all humans carry a story with us. And we're happy to share the parts of our story that are joyous and exciting and fun. And yet we still carry a lot of shame if we're talking about experiences that we've had, especially in the remote past or in our childhood, that that still hurt or that we somehow can't let go of. And... I really hope to see that continue to change because with the research, we very literally now know that trauma is stored in a whole different part of the brain than normal everyday experiences. If I am in a traumatized state when I'm experiencing something painful or traumatic or overwhelming, um, my body will go into a process called fight or flight while I'm trying to cope with whatever that threat may be. If I'm in fight or flight when I have that experience, that is indicative that that particular experience is going to be stored in a certain part of my brain, mainly in a general way. Thinking about it as the limbic area of the brain, the uh, amygdala, the hippocampus, sort of mostly on the right back side of our of our brain. So traumatic experiences get sent there first for probably a lot of different reasons, uh, because if they have to do with life and death. It's as if our brain says, you know what? We need to remember this. We need to learn from this. We need to keep this close because I don't want this to happen again. I want to be ready if it does happen again. This has taught me a lot about life and safety and what I need to do to survive. So that's one of the reasons I think the brain holds our experiences so close there to the spinal column and can access them quickly if we run into future situations that feel similarly threatening, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. When you are saying the word trauma, what sorts of things are you referring to? Like, how would I know how to define trauma in my own mm-hmm.
0: past? I usually um, define trauma as uh, experiences that, that have uh, especially three basic qualities. So any experience that has these qualities or these characteristics can potentially affect us Traumatically, and therefore impact us for long periods of time in, in very extreme ways. So, any experience that I have that either is or is perceived to be threatening, that is a piece of, of that experience being potentially traumatic and affecting me for the long term. I don't even have to know that it's tra- um, threatening, but if I just perceive that, that's going to put my body into a physiological state. Of fight or flight, hyperarousal, et cetera, and threat is not always obvious either. You know, if my spouse dies, I'm not immediately thinking my life is in danger. But the unconscious knows at a very deep level that our deepest attachments feel essential to our well-being and to our survival. We're very, very vulnerable, connected beings when it comes to our attachments to other human beings. So. If I have a car accident or I almost have a car accident, that experience will be stored in the same way whether it actually happened or whether it just looked like it might happen. And later on, I might recall that experience and feel pretty overwhelmed and scared again or on guard or hypervigilant, what have you. So, threatening or appears to be threatening. The other is if I feel or perceive that I am helpless or I am helpless to change whatever's happening or to act on that experience and have some control and choice over how it turns out, then that will also add to the probability that my brain's going to store it as a trauma. So, of course, think about that as children, our very nature is we're helpless. Uh, Our very being is about being helpless. And we're so dependent on the adults in our lives to provide us with guidance and safety and support and a buffer to the world. So children can develop post-traumatic stress disorder exactly the same as adults do, uh, simply based on the fact that as children, we can't make choices, we can't fight or flee, so to speak. We can't overcome somebody that comes into our house. If we need to run away to a safe place to a kind person, uh, hopefully we have a grandparent down the street, we can go get some comfort, but ultimately we're coming back home. So that is one of the reasons that childhood experiences are so profound for us is because our very nature is so vulnerable at that time. The other is that traumatic experiences tend to be or feel overwhelming and often unexpected and out of control, whatever aspect of that you know feels true for the person. So, if an experience is those three things, then our body will go into a fight or flight process, preparing us to deal with whatever it appears is about to happen. So, if possible, the mind and body are prepared to, again, either fight or thwart the threat or overcome it or stop it or overpower it, or to flee and leave the scene and take ourselves to safety. The mind and body hope to be able to do one of those two things in a traumatic experience. If we are able to do one of those two things, then the impact of the trauma will be less. It will not go as deep into our limbic brain for storage and we will feel less owned by that experience. We'll be less preoccupied with it and our brain will be less preoccupied with it. However, there's a third and a fourth response that's in the human mind and body to trauma. And it occurs when we're not able to fight or to flee. And the autonomic nervous system actually makes that decision for us. It is not a conscious process. If I'm in the middle of a a trauma, I'm not really thinking, well, should I fight? Can I get out? It's really an automatic process. And the autonomic nervous system seems to understand and to know what the best choices are because we usually survive traumas. And it's really because our unconscious mind has kind of made the choice for us about whether to try to fight, whether to try to flee, or whether to just freeze and stay still. Another trauma response, though, that we have that's built into us at birth is if we can't fight or flee, we may be able to appease. The biological drive for what we call codependency, which is figuring partially figuring out what people want from us and and becoming that or telling them what they wanna hear, appeasing them, that is actually a trauma response. So we, you know, we may be able to appease if there's a perpetrator, if there's a person involved, but ultimately if we have to freeze in that situation, if we feel disassociated or frozen or unable to move or profoundly helpless and vulnerable, those experiences which freeze us are the ones that last the longest sit in our right brain for the longest, sometimes for years, and continue to create symptoms in our body as if the experience is still happening. So if I have a really traumatic experience and and it's stored in my right limbic brain, and I wasn't able to help myself in that particular experience, then when I think about the experience, I may feel Uh, the same amount of distress and helplessness and frozenness and confusion that I felt at the time that it actually happened. The right brain has no concept of time. So we kind of make a mistake when we say to people, look, that was a long time ago. You know, you should be over that. Or that person isn't even alive anymore. You know, you should feel safe by now. Well, that isn't really up to us. It depends on whether or not we've actually digested or worked through that trauma in a very physiological way I call that process the grief process which is an automatic biological process in the brain that over time moves us through painful experiences and has certain stages and certain things we experience on the way to that healing but about 10 to 15 years ago through the development and understanding of EMDR and what that told us about the brain it was determined that Uh, traumatic experiences can literally get suspended and disconnected from other neural network pathways and sit there in our limbic brain for, again, a lifetime and continue to affect every part of our body physiologically, our ability to sleep, our hypervigilance or our ability to relax. Uh, The brain will hang on to negative core beliefs that we've associated with those traumas, such as it's somehow my fault. I'm not a good person. I deserved that. Those things that we know intellectually aren't true, but one of Vessel van der Kolk's greatest discoveries was that the brain doesn't work from the top down. It works from the bottom up. So experiences will override our intellectual understanding or determination or uh, intelligence, as we say at Milestones, but only 100% of the time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's all, um, gosh, it's just fascinating and so important. One of the things that is maybe the most profound to witness is when people come to one of our offerings, a, a workshop, a program, even a, a professional training or milestones, and they're unsure about uh, what they've experienced that could be traumatic and how it might be um Affecting them now and, and how it might be holding them back going forward, because all they know is is the side effect of trauma that they may be experiencing. Mm-hmm. One of the common things that happens when people have unprocessed trauma, which you may be you, you may list those, but I know some of them are anxiety, you know, depression, mm-hmm. often addictions, mm-hmm. and there you know there's some others that uh, and you, you can speak into those shortly. But usually, someone might show up having the experience of significant stress or anxiety. And let's assume that they've come to you for that and don't even know that they might have a trauma narrative driving it underneath. One of the most powerful things where I was going earlier is at some point in their time with us, we will show them and share with them what you just started, which is the the actual science behind trauma. Here's what's happening in your brain. And what it does for people is it humanizes in a way that Mm -hmm. you start to lights start to go off. Your eyes get a little brighter because you're realizing that I thought this was a character defect. Yes. I thought this was a moral uh, thing that I just, I can't get enough willpower to do it right. So I am flawed and something's wrong with me that I'm having these responses. So it's, it's, I think it's, It's amazing when we get that information, but let's just back it up a little bit. Prior to giving someone that information, if someone's just in front of you right now and says, I've got a significant amount of anxiety, I've never had it before, where do you go with them? What's the first place you might go?
0: What I started to do over the years was just sort of begin earlier and earlier asking people to think about their life as a timeline. And most people can do that easily. They They can sort of see or map their whole life chronologically in their mind. Maybe it's in pictures. Maybe it's a calendar. And I ask them to just share with me, without thinking too hard, what are the three to five most painful moments, experiences, relationships, or themes in your life? What three to five things, sometimes more than that, but usually around three to five things have impacted you the most in a hurtful, negative way. And it's very surprising that people usually know right off the bat. Well, it was because I could never do enough to please my father, no matter how hard I tried. My brother's death when I was 22. uh, My failure at the business that I put everything into. And uh, my child leaving home. You know, and people can just name it. And that's usually where we start. We map out what we call life-defining experiences or target scenes if we're going to do EMDR. And we just sort of start writing them out, putting them in boxes. Sometimes people will draw a little picture of what they see in their mind when they think about that trauma. So we've got, sometimes we'll have 10 or 20 listed out in our first session because they're going to be with us for a while. And we go back and we go, think about this experience right now. Just go there. Your body is going to tell you the truth because the body takes its directive from the limbic brain, not from the intellect. So if that experience is not yet digested or assimilated, which traumatic experiences do over time, hopefully assimilate into the left brain, that's when we really are over them. We feel more peaceful about them. They don't preoccupy our mind. They don't set us up for repetitive mistakes or hypervigilance. If that experience still creates a great deal of fear or sadness or shame or guilt or debilitating emotion, uh, they will feel it in their body. And essentially, that's what anxiety is. It's a state of apprehension. Uh, It's usually felt in the stomach. And it's indicative that the body and the brain are prepared or afraid or on guard in some way. So anxiety usually doesn't have a a specific target. People will say anxiety because they haven't yet named what the actual feelings are that that anxiety is representing. And we tend to separate from that anxiety and call it a symptom. You know, my anxiety is really bothering me today. Instead of, so so trauma separates us from our feelings, from our bodies, and we begin to see ourselves just as a, a bunch of symptoms. And then we start trying to figure out how we're going to get away from them. So we might start drinking or drugging or overeating or staying too busy. So we learn to run from ourselves essentially. And what that anxiety is really doing is is, it's asking us to pay attention. It's more or less calling us to come in and listen and hear the pain that we're carrying inside of us. So therapies which do that are, are extremely powerful and fairly simple when we learn to go towards our feelings, breathe through our feelings and, you know, it's not an easy process, but it, it can be practiced and, and, um, and met very well. That ability to, to begin to identify our feelings, feel our feelings and breathe through them, which is what the body needs in order to move to the next place towards healing. So another thing we know about anxiety is a lot of it has to do with low serotonin levels. So if I have unprocessed trauma in my limbic brain, my body basically thinks it's still happening, even if it's been 10 years. And if I try to go to sleep at night into a normal sleep process, ideally I'm going to go down through four levels of sleep, right? Deeper, deeper, deeper. Alpha, beta, theta, delta waves at our deepest place of sleep. If the body believes I'm not safe, the world's not safe, people aren't safe, even based on old... Experiences from the past, it's going to not allow me to drop into four stage sleep. That's restorative sleep. So people can go for years and years and years without restorative sleep. Combat survivors, we're all familiar with, you know, sleep maybe with one eye open or the slightest noise in the room and they wake up. It's really the the mind and body attempting to protect them. But when we start missing that four stage sleep, all of the hormones and chemicals in our body start to get thrown off. Inflammation starts to build up in our in our cells, um, and in particular, serotonin, which is the neurotransmitter that helps us feel confident and calm, uh, begins to be depleted. And eighty percent of serotonin is in our our gut, in our belly, and that's where we begin to feel the symptoms.
1: And and the reason I wanted to start with anxiety is I think you know it's, it's something that people can tend to get their mind around uh, versus trauma, which often we have a narrow, constricted view about, you know, and I, I like to, to define trauma as anything other than nurturing, because it you, you think about for people that didn't fall in that category of overt trauma, like traumatically losing the loss of a loved one, having abandonment from a, a parent, it might be at your crucial stage of brain development, somewhere around adolescence, 16, 17 year old, years old, You you lost a a a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And that, like what you said earlier, our deepest attachments are vital and essential to our well-being. Well, that can be, people underestimate what teenagers go through, but where they are in the process of their brain, if that happens socially, and you've got the embarrassment and shame of it happening, then that can feel life or death.
0: Yes. Yes. And um, especially for people who have a disrupted attachment in their childhood, when they really could have died because mom died or dad left or a parent abandoned them, what have you. When I experience that later in life, if I haven't healed those original wounds at a cellular level, my body is going to react and tell me that I'm dying because it's reminiscent of a prior experience. And if it's similar enough, the body will default into reacting to it as if it is that original experience again.
1: I've always found it fascinating that one of the number one things ever written about in a song is heartbreak, yeah. heartache. Yeah. And ultimately we're writing about trauma, mm-hmm. but we're not calling it that. It's mm-hmm. it's the way and in and, and the way we're putting that out usually through the writer's own experience or writing about someone else's pain is yeah. it's taking the pain of the world, digesting it, putting it into a, 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 an experiential process that then serves as support for millions of other people, that right. they can leave their experience for a moment and help process or digest some of their pain. But what we're really talking about is trauma. It's just heartbreak, heartache is more accepted.
0: Right. And there's nothing more universally healing than to not feel alone in our pain. And one of the most difficult experiences of whatever our pain is, no matter how profound it is, is to be alone in that. So even listening to a country song and hearing that person, whoever they may be, expressing that they've had the same pain, even if sometimes we know it's just a song, it may not be, um, we feel again what we crave the most in life and that is connection to other living beings, other humans. Hey friends, Mackenzie here. I'm interrupting this amazing conversation with Cindy Westcott to make sure you've heard about our recently re-released digital course, 30 Days of Living Centered. If you're tired of your circumstances determining the amount of joy, hope, and security you feel day in and day out, this self-paced online course will help you establish the daily rhythms and practices you need to go from surviving to thriving. Plus, to celebrate podcast launch week, We're giving you 50% off when you use the code PODCAST. Head to onsiteworkshops.com slash 30 days to learn more, then hurry back here to join for the rest of the conversation.
2: It was interesting earlier, you mentioned that sort of when we, when trauma sends us into that freeze state, that that a lot of times is when it doesn't get processed and can lead to some of these anxiety and other post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. And I always, I guess, before hearing you say that, I just equated when I've moved into that free state that the reason why it was harder to get over was because I felt shame for not doing
0: anything. Is that a common narrative or? So, so common. People will beat themselves up for years in certain situations, because they didn't fight, or they didn't just leave, or they stayed in that relation, that abusive relationship, too long. And some of the information coming out right now on the brain, which is uh, what we, polyvagal theory, has told us that the autonomic nervous system doesn't wait for us to decide whether we're going to fight or not. It tells us based on centuries of of experience and a very unconscious process, and whatever decision we made no matter what it is we really didn't make it but we made the right one if we survived Mm. but because we weren't able to fight or flee that anger to fight is still in our body that fear to flee is still in our body and the therapies actually involve helping the person access and work through and express the anger they didn't get to express and the fear that they didn't get to use to run And if those stay in the body long enough, the fear turns into panic attacks and anxiety and the anger turns into depression, internalized anger often becomes depression or a feeling of being sort of living in concrete and and feeling numb or uh, disconnected from ourselves. Yeah. So it's so common for people to think they actually made the choice. Right. Yeah.
1: Let's uh, talk about trauma in, in real time. and, take it from individually to collectively. You know, I think there are so many threads that are relative to how you adapt and what resilience you have on board later has everything to do with your historic and current environment. Do you feel safety and secure attachment around you? But what happens when the world gets turned on its head? You know, we're having this conversation in the midst of a global health, uh, the greatest global health crisis we've ever seen, maybe we'll ever see. Explain what we all might be experiencing right now as it relates to trauma.
0: I've been fortunate enough to, to listen to a lot of trauma survivors talk about and be able to put words to what it is about this pandemic that has created such a profound and intense response in themselves. Many of them have been Milestones clients before. We've called and checked up on them, followed up with them just to see how they're doing. And I had one client who said that I called and she said, you know, it's like, um," and she's a profound trauma survivor, lots of abuse, et cetera, has done a lot of work in healing. But she said, it's like, there's a perpetrator outside. I know they're out there. I can't see them. I know they're lurking. I know they can kill me. I know they've already killed a couple of people that I love and i feel powerless and helpless and terrified i feel frozen in my home i feel rage because i can't seem to take control and i don't i don't know what to do with this i've got to isolate from the people that i love the most i feel alone she worded it so beautifully and also the feeling trapped is always a huge theme or most of the time for trauma survivors if i've been a trauma survivor where i have been trapped or contained or the victim of a violent crime or sexual abuse or physical abuse or what have you, sometimes my greatest fear is any kind of sense of being trapped. So a lot of people have developed panic attacks as a result of feeling like they're trapped in their house and they just can't go or they can't leave. It tends to open the filing system in the brain of other times when I couldn't go and I couldn't leave. It's interesting how the brain stores memories by theme when we're experiencing something in the here and now that's got a theme of I'm not good enough or I'll be abandoned or I'm alone or I'm going to die, the brain will access other memories almost as a way of saying, well, remember this, remember this, remember this. Here's how we survive that. It will tend to pull all of that up and we'll be reacting to all of those traumas all at once, uh, which truly shuts us down and makes us feel terrified and frozen.
2: And I think for me, just listening to you process so much of that has rung true in this season, but it's the idea that I could do everything right. And I still can't control sort of if I get sick or, you know, like it feels so much bigger than what I can control, I guess is the easiest way to say it.
0: Yeah. And feeling helpless may be the very worst feeling that human beings can experience, especially under threat. Yeah.
1: Week after week. I, it feels like from this is from a leadership standpoint. You, there are weeks where there are no good decisions. There's just no good decisions. But you have a lot of people depending on you to make the right one. When you're looking at the and there's like there is no right one. And, but and, and then you you make a few uh, and you get some say you get a win. And now I'm getting to a point where I'm braced. I'm literally braced. I'm like, oh, man, this was a good thing that happened with this particular. We had a breakthrough here with a guest. We helped <clears throat> change something. We did this or we were able to do that. And then you're like, well, something bad is going to inevitably happen tomorrow. And we're going to be back in that place. And that has been true. That has been true that the good. I've never seen the good and the bad be so polarizing. And I hate to put them in those camps, but the, the good and the challenging. It's just like. Boom, this thing happens and boom, this thing happens in five minutes later, and I'm like, you know, my, I just feel like in a constant state of well, where where would I be in that case? And do you explain what's happening in my mind?
0: You know, I'd call that a hypervigilant stance in your body. It's reality. Um, every day there is a surprise. You don't have any control over it. It is life and death. Um, it is livelihood. You know, that's not a stretch to say we can fill it at a cellular level as to our to our livelihood, if it's our business or if it's our income or how we support our families. So it's felt every second as as a challenge to pure survival. And, you know, there's there's no experts in pandemics alive that I know of. I don't. Well, maybe there's a few people that survived the 1918 Spanish flu. Right. Which was horrific. They had an anti-mask society then as well. I'm actually reading a book on this, and it's actually helping me, kind of get it in perspective and 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 look at what they did which was a lot of the same things we're experiencing, and um, that's part of the problem too. Is is we're looking for somebody to to lead us or show us how to do this, and there just aren't anybody that actually you know that really really knows the effective way to do it. So we do the best we can. And we do better when we stick together, even if we're bumbling through it all. If we're staying connected and trying to stay in compassion for each other, we do better. We're all grieving. You know, there's been several articles that have come out about how the pandemic has put us all into a grief process. For lots of different reasons, because we've lost people we know. We've lost our routines. We've not been able to attend funerals and grieve together. We've lost uh, our sense of safety Some of us have lost our livelihood, our business, uh, everything that makes our life orderly and and predictable and meaningful. And people react to it in different ways. But the grief process is, first of all, the first stage of a grief process is shock. You know, so in the beginning, we were all just kind of wandering around feeling confused and lost and trying to make sense out of what, you know, pandemic, what's that? And then the next stage, which is natural to humans, is denial our brain literally puts us into a state of denial to try to protect us. We don't want to stay there, but it's a it's a healthy response that helps us kind of back up from the reality of what we're about to have to deal with and and kind of look at it in a softer way without as much alarm. Then we do bargaining. So bargaining is if then. Well, maybe I'll just maybe I'll just gather with a couple of my friends or maybe I'll get the N95 mask instead of the cloth one, and that'll be easier. Or maybe I'll just go to the store just this once. Uh, We're trying to change the reality. And then we get into guilt, which is a sense of control. And I think people tend to deal with trauma in one of three ways. Some people fight it. We're fighters. We're neurologically fighters. And if we're threatened, we go into anger. And others of us go into running or escaping or hiding and others of us just sit and stare into space. And I think it's everybody responding to the same thing, and that's fear. Then we move into sorrow and sadness. I mean, I think I, I know that I've broken down just out of nowhere several times during the last eight or nine months. And I, I don't even know what I'm crying about, but I'm crying for the loss, for my own losses, but the loss of the world. Somehow it feels like the whole world is suffering. And then the anger. You know, anger is an inevitable part of grief.
1: And I don't want to make this um, this conversation about trauma completely pandemic specific, because I hope people listen to this for a long time and have takeaways uh, around trauma. But just plug in whatever might be going on in your life. I think in an environment like this, when you learn to hold space uh, for one another and you value the humanness in you, you value the humanness in, in, in other people then our guard goes down a little bit.
0: Totally. And, you know, as you say that, I'm thinking about the reality that physiologically our bodies are in a fight or flight response, which we also know shuts us off from much of our perspective and puts us in an immediate kind of process. And we're in an emergency place and we're not as able to reason or look at things in a perspective or step back, as you were saying because literally we're all in that space and um, it's hard to reach the deeper, more wise parts of ourselves in those states.
1: Which is which is why I guess the, the, the importance of, of voices and advocacy and people, fight. you know, I, I, we're watching what's happening in our own state here with Tennessee being the, the number one place of transmission in the world right now. And every medical professional in the state across both aisles is pleading with our governor to do a, a mask mandate. And we all were on the edge of our, a lot of people are on the edge of their seats. I'm sure people were on the other camp of hoping he wouldn't. And he didn't. And I came out and did a statement uh, and, and, and didn't. And I was just, I wonder what space that that leadership might be making that decision from. I wonder what wound, I wonder what, and because I immediately, it's so easy to go to political agenda, of course, and money and votes, but there's probably a deeper narrative running there that I think everybody that's like, fight, fight, fight. I -hmm. can't believe, I can't believe. Instead of, I wonder if there's a different way to get to the outcome that we hope for in a more effective manner. But like you said, when you're doing it in the middle of a crisis or trauma, you don't have a lot Mm -hmm. of time.
0: (laughs) But I'm like you, the the more time we could take to go deep, we would always, 100% of the time, be able to make sense out of anybody's response to this or how they're faring with it or how they're feeling. It's always gonna be traced back to core experiences, core issues, things other than just temperament or anything conscious. So I, I believe when we're very, very angry, most of the time we're very, very scared. And anger is a natural response to threat anyway.
2: I think that listening to y'all talk about this, like it just is really helpful to like give permission to like call this pandemic traumatic and, and to own that that that's happening. And I also noticed my own tendency sort of in that that grief model that you quickly went through to like move really quickly to acceptance. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes I neglect the feeling parts I'm not great at the anger or the sadness piece of it. And I think even with this, I've noticed how ha- after having to shift plans a couple of times and really having to grieve Christmas in a lot of ways, the way that I usually would spend it with my family, that, that that's something that I need to carve out time to go back and do is mm-hmm. to feel the feelings around it and to own sort of what it's costing me. I give, yeah, just have grace and empathy for myself. Mm-hmm. And- all those feelings.
0: And to actually expect different feelings as as we heal as inevitable. We a lot of us want to jump over grief. <laughs> if somebody hurts us or something we want to jump over everything and say I forgive you. And we're much more likely to, to forgive if we allow ourselves to go through all the other feelings that naturally come before that.
2: Is there any sort of practical tips on how to do that well? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, journaling is is so powerful. It sounds like a simple answer, but there's plenty of research on uh, the immune systems of people that journal daily. Gratitude is huge. We know that it changes the wiring in the brain. You know, there was a study on depression in France, a very large study. Apparently, this was a huge group of people who suffer years and years and years with depression, and they gave them about 50 different types of interventions to each to, well, they gave out you know you this group will do this, this group will do this. The number one intervention that made the biggest difference for this particular study was people taking omega three fish oil. But the number two most effective was they gave this group of people the assignment of at the end of every day, they were to write down three good things that happened that day. Now this group though had to add something else to it and that is, here's three good things that happened today. And here's why I think it happened. Whereas the group that just wrote down three good things that happened this day that I'm grateful for and nothing else, we're sort of way down the line in the, you know, in in the 20s somewhere. So um, journaling is is very, very powerful. And just being authentic and being real and talking to the people we can be honest with is is our greatest hope for uh, being resilient. Is telling the truth about how hard it is or how much we're struggling or how mad we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really good.
1: Yeah. I think that is a myth that we hear a lot that if I were to share my pain with another person or talk about it or spend an hour talking about the impacts that it could be having on us, that somehow that would not serve us, but keep us stuck in some kind of negative narrative. And it, mm-hmm. actually it's 100% the opposite. What keeps mm-hmm. us stuck is when we keep it below the surface. We've just, oh, gosh, I've seen it from 20 years of my career in mental health it, over and over and over again. But another thing I think that's important, you know, Lindsay, it in, 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 reflective to what I was talking about early, earlier on, you know, it's important, I think, when people are in individual collective trauma to empower and to give people their voice. And you can do that and have structure containment and boundaries on board. And one without the other is, I think, dangerous. So mm-hmm. when we bring people into our environment, uh, for instance, our, our milestones environment, and they've experienced or are inactive trauma, one, we realize somebody suppressed your voice. And so it needs to be heard here. So we're not one of those dogmatic programs that tries to shove change philosophy down your throat without you having a say in what you're here for. We want you to be empowered to make the change we believe you can make. But we also don't say we have no guidelines here. You know, just do whatever you want, because if we did, it would be irrational, uh, irresponsible and unsafe. And so you can have both and you can have containment, you can have guidelines and you can have boundaries, most importantly, boundaries, and you can empower and give people and yourself a voice. And I think when those are integrated, then we start taking the natural steps to be able to tell our truth safely, to be able to listen and hold other people's truth safely, and to begin to process step by step some of the adversity that we experience and nobody really escapes along the way. So I think we've got this huge obstacle that we're we're all facing right now, as Cindy is, has shared eloquently around how our brain works and our filing system works in our brain, that for many, if not most of us, a season like this is going to activate historic adverse circumstances and so we've kind of got both that we're navigating but what we we sit on fortunately it's part of the benefit of doing our work is we don't just see and hold space for the pain and tragedy we also see or are inspired by the recovery and the resilience and the growth that happens post adverse or traumatic experience and in some Mm -hmm. cases i can tell you the number of people me being one of them that what I have overcome has helped me because of what I've done with it has helped me become who I am today. And I don't know that I would have become who I am today without it. I I want to be careful not to use that cliche, uh, you know, of it was all on purpose and all that stuff. And that because some of the stuff that happened to many of us should have never happened. It doesn't deserve or belong to you, but what you get, what you do with it is yours and can be owned collectively in a community. So I say that to say we've historically navigated our own traumatic circumstances on an island. And we were lucky. And if we were lucky, we'd find a small community of people on their island or to come to our island that we could relate to. We we have an island here on the hill at OnSite every week intentionally. We create our own island of people who don't come here celebrating their highlight reel. They come here with their guard down and they find a safe place to own all the parts of themselves. But now we find ourselves that everybody is on the same island and we're all experiencing trauma together at some level. And so you could see this as the world's greatest obstacle if we handle it like we've handled it historically after significant traumatic events in the world where it just wreaked havoc for decades and mental health statistics shot through the roof which they are they're there now or collectively we could come together and do something a little differently i think if we have more empathy on board for ourselves and other people we might have a chance to come out of this thing as humanity better than we came yes. into it yes so that's the exciting part about understanding more, I think, about trauma and how it impacts our brain, how it impacts our world. And Cindy, I've seen you do a, an hour and a day long presentation on trauma. And there's so much more that we could have got into in terms of the nuts and bolts and the science of it. But and we'll have time. We'll do some more of this as we go. But for today, I just wanted people to get a sense of what's happening so that hopefully if you've got a low shame ceiling in your own story of thinking that how your body or your mind is responding right now has something to do with that. It's your fault. You know, that I I hope we've raised that a little bit Mm -hmm. and given you some more understanding and empathy about who you are and who you're becoming. And so as we kind of start to close out the conversation here and land the plane, I guess, you know, what would be some hopeful messages that that you've seen an experience that you might provide for people that are listening to this today, that might feel stuck. Somebody at the very beginning of this conversation that might have, when you said, when I gave you that example of someone in anxiety and you said, well, the first thing I might have them do is just say, thank you, your life in a timeline and go back to what if those people that actually did that, they went back to those one, two, three things. And that might feel overwhelming for them right now. You know, yeah. what's, what would you want them to know?
0: Well, that if they feel immediately overwhelmed, it's a message from their mind and body to slow down, (laughs) to keep it on the surface, to find help, to find support. When you were talking earlier, I was remembering an old therapist of mine who gave me a sheet of paper when I was in a five day program. And my treatment plan said five words share your pain with others. Mm. Everybody else's treatment plan had all these details in it. Mine's had five words share your pain with others. And that is the universal treatment plan. We share everything with each other, our stories, our adventures, our excitement, our pictures, whatever. But we're created to need each other. It's not weak to need each other. It's healthy to be interdependent. And we as Americans especially consider it weak to need anything in a general way. Um, we think we're supposed to tough it out or somehow we're, we're failing. So remembering the universal treatment plan, share your pain with others that you feel safe with and that can respond to that with a caring and safe response. And it's also important to control what we can control. You know, the serenity prayer says, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Those things that we can control, that we can make choices about, it's really important to consciously do that. What can I control and to take action on that that will keep us from falling into a a frozen, hopeless, helpless hole that we can't get out of? So we need to do something, but we need to not try to control outcomes or other people or things that are bigger than us and outside of our control. We usually mistake those two things.
1: You've seen, Cindy, I can't imagine in 30 years of, well, I know because you've shared some of the stories. I mean, you've seen some of the worst things imaginable or heard some of the worst things imaginable of what can happen uh, to human beings. And then you've also had a front row seat to probably some of the more beautiful miracles that most people might never get to see or experience. And what a challenging position to be in to hold that paradox of being able to hold all that pain and yet witness all those miracles. What's, what's that been like for you personally? To sit in that seat.
0: Every day of my 30 plus years, I've been humbled and honored to sit with people who choose to trust me enough to share their pain with me when most of the time they don't have a clue who I am. There's no greater honor than to hold space and bear witness to another human being that's walking through this journey of, of healing. I absolutely believe, and yes, I have heard some things that I've i am surprised I actually survived hearing, but I've never failed to be profoundly touched by the, by the amazing strength of our human spirit and what we can actually do when we connect to each other and help each other. We can't do it alone. And yet what we can heal is everything there is to heal, as long as we're willing to walk the journey and reach out for people to walk with us into those places. Mm -hmm.
2: Cindy, I'm so grateful for how you hold space for our participants, but I'm just also so grateful for how you hold space for our whole team and meetings and sort of, I think that you always bring us into a safe space. So I feel grateful for you. Thank you, Lindsay. Yeah,
1: likewise, Cindy. Thank you for that. Thank you for your time today. And for all of you out there listening, I hope, you know, we want this format to be a safe place, but we want to also lean into hard conversations. And sometimes we're going to rumble through things, and we're trying to we're trying to be as inclusive as we possibly can. But we don't necessarily want to always be Switzerland and and not lean into things that we're all grappling with. And we want to put ourselves in the seat of you uh, to not always try to be the, the. You come here to learn something from subject matter experts, but no, we're actually human beings that so we sit on some information that. Is pretty vital, but it's also complicated at times to figure out how to integrate into our own lives. But if you walk away with anything today, I hope it's a little bit more empathy and grace for yourself and other people. And to quote my friend Cindy, there is no greater honor uh, than to hold space for another human being. And what human beings can uh, not just survive, but build. you You said the resilience of the human spirit is unbelievable. So as you walk away from today, whatever you might be going through individually, whatever you might be experiencing collectively, uh, just remember the human spirit is remarkable and what we can't do alone, we can do together. So Cindy, thank you for your
0: time today. Thank you all. I enjoyed it.
1: Thanks for joining us for this conversation. If you want to hear more from OnSite, find us on social media at OnSite Workshops. You can also find me at Miles Edcox.
2: When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.